the more that things are criminal and the larger the penalties, the more you're going to have boards get involved, the more you're going to need very senior management to be involved. And that may result in just more hesitation to make a voluntary disclosure if there's still no legal requirement that you do it. Welcome to the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back with another episode of All Things Investigation. Thrilled to have back with me, Mike Hunnicky. Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be back. Today, we're going to talk about something that's interested us, and that is the new DOJ Mergers and Acquisitions Safe Harbor Policy. You and your colleagues have written about this with a great title, Damn the Torpedoes, Key Takeaway from the DOJ's new M&A Safe Harbor Policy. First of all, could you maybe set up for us what the new, if that's the right phrase, policy is? Absolutely, Tom. Well, in your question, you've really hit on the issue. Is this something new or not? It would be fair to say this is really an aggregation, or even as I've heard you describe it, the continuation of a trend where there's not a whole lot new as far as what DOJ is offering companies for voluntary disclosure. I do think there's some significance that Deputy Attorney General Monaco felt the need to emphasize it. Clearly, she's signaling it. I think that the emphasis on this being a department-wide policy is particularly important, given the importance of sanctions enforcement and trade controls enforcement. But it is a bit of a question, is this something new or not? So there are some firm deadlines on this. You want to go over those and say what you think those entail for a compliance officer or a corporation to meet, and then maybe talk about how do we go about doing that? Absolutely. Really, since the Halliburton opinion procedure release, Tom, there's been some kind of benchmark for, at least in particular circumstances, what the DOJ might expect. I think for a long time, that was assumed to be reasonable. The Halliburton opinion release itself didn't set a bright line rule. It just said under those circumstances, what Halliburton proposed to do, and ultimately, which it never did because it didn't win the acquisition through the bankruptcy proceedings in the UK, would have been reasonable in the eyes of the DOJ. What was reasonable or not is hard to determine. It's sometimes described as an objective standard, but it's subjectively set, I think, in people's real life experiences. And for big companies, particularly making big acquisitions, reasonable sometimes is two years to integrate a major target entity into your compliance program, particularly if they have hundreds of agents or thousands of suppliers and things like that. So but what they did set, and then Deputy Attorney General Monaco's speech was at least clear deadlines. The first is you have until six months after closing to make the voluntary disclosure to then be entitled to a presumption of a declination as the buyer. And then you have one year to remediate. Both of those are still pretty quick deadlines for any big multinational, but at least there's some clarity there. The 
DOJ did also allow for reasonableness wiggle room here or there, but that's going to be how they see it, not you. So you can certainly argue for it, but I wouldn't count on it. Like I have worked in corporate America in a multinational, multi-billion dollar energy company, and frankly, six months is about the blink of an eye. Yes. So this is a pretty aggressive deadline to meet, but I think it can be met, or at least you can work towards it if you take some key steps pre-acquisition. If you find that uh, a fair assessment, how would you suggest a compliance professional think through meeting the six-month deadline? I do think that's fair. And if I were a compliance professional in-house, Tom, I would go to my general counsel right now and ask for more resources because it means you need to be at the table and you need to be at the table earlier in deals. The only place you have to really gain time is pre-close. And the earlier you're involved pre-acquisition, the better. Now, does that mean you're there with a team of 10 people and an army of external lawyers? No, the deals might even become unprofitable at that point. But it does mean earlier in the process and early as possible, you need to be around the discussion, you need to be at the table and have an understanding of, well, okay, are there going to be some thorny issues here? What countries are we doing business in at the target? Do they rely a lot on third parties or not? Is the type of thing they're doing or selling controversial? And frankly, either from a anti-corruption perspective or from a potential sanctions or export controls risk perspective. The sooner you're at the table and a meaningful player in the discussions, the sooner you can spot issues and try to get ahead of them. So years ago, I interviewed a former chief compliance officer, and he said he had four sort of informal guidelines for pre-acquisition due diligence. This was really before data analytics came into four, but his four key interviews were the following. The target's CEO to establish tone at the top, the target CCO to really get a sense of the overall effectiveness of their compliance program, the target's head of operations to understand where they were doing business, how they were doing business, and who they were doing business with, and then maybe top two couple of salesmen just to see how they conducted themselves and the things they did as the top salesman and then taking perhaps a deep dive into some of their expense accounts. Would that be at least a place to start in your opinion? Sure, Todd. I think as far as trying to speak to people, if they let you speak to them, that would be a good place to start. I think it also requires the compliance professionals involved in pre-acquisition due diligence to really have access to the whole data room. Sometimes we see targets and sellers understandably wanting to sometimes be helpful or maybe not by setting up a specific folder in the data room, sometimes in the clean room that's focused on, well, here's your FCPA relevant materials or here's your compliance relevant materials. You really have to have a holistic view of the whole operations of the business to assess, well, where are they using agents? Where are their customers located? Are they actually doing business in sanctioned countries? Your job at this point, really both as a compliance officer, but also as an employee of the business, is to help your sales team and your M&A team value the company accurately. And if there's business flows that you're not going to be able to maintain, let's say you're subject to U.S. jurisdiction and the target hasn't been, you need to know whether you can count on some of that business or not, or if some of that business needs to be, frankly, carved out of the deal or valued at zero effectively because you just can't continue it. Having that bedrock of familiarity with the data room then is a great basis to talk to those people. 
And certainly you do need to talk to them because you'll get a sense, not only maybe you've interpreted or misinterpreted the data room, but how do they feel about compliance? What is their culture? What tone are they giving you in the interview? Or have they been waiting to talk to you and they're excited about their program or are they not so thrilled to speak to you? That's a great point that you raised about the business valuation because in all things and with all things compliance, there's really an underlying business reason to do it. And you hit it precisely on the head. If you're doing business in a way that you cannot going forward or your company will not, that shouldn't be part of your business valuation. And it simply protecting yourself from legal ramifications is one area. But in my mind, the bigger area is not getting that contract revenue or any additional work if the target is, is using tactic strategies that are antithetical to the FCPA as well. Let me turn to another area that I really appreciated you and your colleagues brought up in the article. Yes, this is M&A, but Mr. Buyer or Ms. Buyer, this applies to you. Could you maybe talk about what this means for companies thinking about being? Absolutely. Yeah. This is as much for sellers as buyers and sellers hate nothing more than to be on the cusp of a deal and then have the compliance lawyers come in at the very last minute and raise all these questions no one thought of that then push back the deal or change the price or add complicated terms to a purchase agreement, for example. So sellers should be looking at this and anticipating that there will be more questions from buyers and more questions from buyers' counsel. And they may, they being the buyers, may actually ask and insist upon the sellers making that disclosure even themselves in some cases, which I think on the export controls and uh, trade sanctions side of the house, so to speak, is more common pre-acquisition. Sellers can save time. They can avoid the unnecessary delays or unexpected delays by anticipating that compliance questions, not just anti-corruption questions, but any type of compliance questions related to U.S. law are now going to come up more often and be more important to the buyer. Like one of my favorite stories in pre-acquisition due diligence was a major U.S. tech company going private. And the then chief compliance officer told me he was called on December 24th at home and asked about due diligence on an agent at Intel. And this was not a merger and acquisition, it was private, but I wanted to use that example as a way to introduce the question, is this new safe harbor provision something that major players in the private equity space might consider going or using for their own protection as well? Absolutely. If you're a private equity fund and you have a portfolio of companies and you want to prepare them to be sold efficiently and quickly, just as we were just talking as far as sellers in a maybe typical, maybe that's not quite the right word, but M&A deal. As a PE fund, you actually do have an incentive to prepare your companies to be sold under this new policy. Now, it doesn't mean you have to flip the private equity script and over-invest in loss-leading compliance functions, but you should be anticipating that these questions are going to come up. And the stronger program you have and the more awareness you have of the compliance, let's say, status of your portfolio companies, the better you'll be able to make deals efficiently and to maximize the value of those companies. This policy was not simply limited to the fraud section, the FCPA unit. It was a department-wide policy. What implications do you see by making this policy department-wide? For me, Tom, the huge implication is that this dovetails with the DOJ has been saying now for a long time that sanctions are the new FCPA. 
If you look at Lisa Monaco's speech, she starts with an emphasis on companies being on the front line of national security issues today, not really just limited sanctions or export controls, but also terrorist financing. And so they are very, very, very interested, they being the DOJ, in having companies play an active role in these national security issues and really, in a sense, American foreign policy. To really have that role be meaningful to them, the DOJ, they need information. They need to know who the bad players are. They need to know who are the companies that are facilitating sanctions evasion. And so they really need companies to come forward. For me, the fact that this applies to the National Security Division is extremely important and is a big signal to companies. Mike, I know you have been thinking about this convergence of anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, export controls, and now anti-terrorist financing quite some time. But in December of 2021, the Biden administration announced its policy on anti-corruption, elevating anti-corruption to a national security issue. Of course, in February of 2022, we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine and an attendant explosion in not only export sanctions, but money laundering sanctions. And now with the conflict in the Middle East, I think many people are more focused on terrorist financing, use of cryptocurrency perhaps to finance terrorism. Do we seem to be moving towards some type of convergence or are you and your colleagues seeing that? And if so, how does a compliance professional think through advising senior management up to the board? Well, Tom, as someone who grew up as an FCPA lawyer, I'm a little bit biased, but what I think it means is that you now have to apply across the board what I would call an anti-corruption mindset. Some might call it paranoia. But you really have to ask yourself, what do we really think is happening? And that's the standard that you're going to be judged by. Let's take, for example, a recent prosecution in the Northern District of Georgia, where U.S. companies were sending heavy equipment to a general trading company in the UAE. And they took at face value, at least the forwarders did, a statement that the end customer was this general trading company. A general trading company on the dock at Jebel Ali port is not going to keep and use for its own purposes a bulldozer. It's going somewhere else. And I think in the future, and if not already today, National Security Division, DOJ more generally, is going to ask you, where did you think this was going? How could you possibly have thought this was actually staying where someone told you it was staying? That's just not plausible on its face. And you can get into the weeds as much as you want about HTS codes and export classification numbers, but the DOJ isn't going to care anymore. They're going to expect you to apply that kind of anti-corruption mindset, that paranoia, and ask yourself these questions, whether you're the manufacturer, whether you're the US-based freight forwarder. And so I think that's going to be a real challenge. Now, how can you prepare your teams to exercise that judgment in the right moment? And how can you target and triage what are the most important cases to be that paranoid about? I think that a good strategy is to have some of your anti-corruption in-house people work with your trade teams and vice versa, and really try to cross-pollinate the bit of mindset. On the one hand, people who have been doing anti-corruption work are not really into the weeds of these codes and classification numbers and all the different types of sanctioned regimes that exist. On the other hand, sometimes they're too in the weeds, and they're not stepping back and asking themselves a question that now a criminal prosecutor is going to ask. This isn't administrative anymore. It's not regulatory anymore. They've added all these criminal prosecutors. They've added a chief of corporate enforcement at the National Security Division. That's going to lead to criminal prosecutions. So it's good to anticipate that now by trying to put on that hat, so to speak, and think that way before it's too late. 
Mike, one of the issues that was raised for me in this announcement was that prosecutions around export controls, for instance, are usually through prosecutions, administrative actions, or through the Department of Commerce. Money laundering comes through the Department of Treasury. They are different regulators. They are different regulations. They are different laws. And I have personal experience with export control where I could call up a BIS because I'm thinking about doing this. Can you give me a guidance? Am I headed in the right direction? My sense is you cannot call someone in the FCPA unit and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And get an opinion on the phone. You can go through an opinion release, but that's a very different kind of animal. So that's a long-winded way of saying the Department of Justice and BIS are administrators and regulators, and FinCEN is administrators and regulators. Do you see any difficulty or perhaps even leading to a counterintuitive result of less disclosures because of these differences in approaches and the now very clear signal of potential criminal penalty? Well, I think there is a bit of a risk that on the one hand, you may be making a disclosure with an administrative or regulatory penalty is a little bit easier of a decision to make and then less to soul searching than making a disclosure with potential criminal liability. I think the DOJ is trying to address that here with, let's say, more generally the voluntary disclosure policy, but also this specific safe harbor that they've announced. A wrinkle in this is that you don't get to keep the ill-gotten gains from their perspective. There's still disgorgement. There's still a penalty. And you also don't get to kind of run a controlled experiment and then run it back if you don't like the result. And so the more that things are criminal and the larger the penalties, the more you're going to have boards get involved, the more you're going to need very senior management to be involved. And that may result in just more hesitation to make a voluntary disclosure if there's still no legal requirement that you do it. The more that DOJ can explain, I think that Sanctions evasion and export controls are really more and more like the FCPA, that the more that there's a high probability that you have a risk, you actually already have an issue, rather than waiting to know if there's an actual violation or not. Companies might feel like more instances of things, maybe inaccurately or imprecisely call them that, might be an issue. And so there may be more things you have to consider disclosing. That may result in more disclosures. But I think the more things are frankly like British American Tobacco, who paid $1.1 billion in DOJ penalties and OFAC fines, the harder that decision is to make that disclosure. We mentioned already the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury. This M&A Safe Harbor announcement applies to the Department of Justice across the Department of Justice. What about other departments or regulators, such as the FTC, who has a very robust antitrust enforcement regime under the current? Chair Lena Khan, or perhaps other agencies who might be involved, or even the SEC is, in my mind, it's an open question of whether this will apply to them, but do you have some insight or do you have the same questions? Same questions, Tom, and maybe we'll see not so much time that some of the other agencies adopting a similar policy or at least agreeing to follow the same approach if there's already been a disclosure to the DOJ in the context of an acquisition. I really would hope the SEC would do so. It would be silly to run to the DOJ, but not really cover off whatever issues there might be with the SEC, particularly let's assume, as usual, that people aren't accurately recording their crimes in your books and records. I think 
Deputy Attorney General Monaco specifically excluded in her speech any applicability of this to the kind of civil merger review that the antitrust division might do. So it's not a cure-all for all things. And that will further raise questions at companies before they go forward. If they think they have issues involving other agencies or other aspects that have already been excluded, that would cause them to hesitate to jump out in front of this with just the DOJ. Mike, we talked about extensively the six-month from closing deadline, but there's another deadline I'd like to explore a little bit with you, and it's, quote, companies will then have a baseline of one year from the date of closing to fully remediate the conduct. Once again, how would you counsel a company on this remediation? It puts a premium on knowing as soon as possible the root cause. That's the cornerstone of remediation. It's something DOJ has stressed repeatedly. If you think there's a problem that you've identified in pre-acquisition due diligence, keep asking questions, keep trying to get information out of the seller or the target so that you have a view as to the root cause. And as soon as possible after close, start to integrate that into your program, prioritizing things that will remove the root cause. So if someone just didn't have an export control classification system, day zero, have a plan for who's responsible and how is that going to get done? Because a year is not much time to implement something across as any company of significant size, particularly they're almost always going to be coming with their own ways of doing things. And depending on whether it kind of looks like a merger of equals or not, some targets actually think they're the acquiring company and push back a lot on the imposition of the buyer's culture and policies. So identifying root cause is absolutely the key. And then realistically, you're not going to be able to integrate an entire company into your compliance program in one year. Make sure you have a plan that's well-documented and based on the due diligence for prioritizing what's coming in first. If you know they have 700 agents and they don't do any due diligence, that might still be your top priority. This may sound like a very basic question, but I'd like to go ahead and ask it anyway. Would you advise a company to have both an investigative and a remediation team working simultaneously? That's question one. Two, how do you coordinate those two functions? Is it one person at the top? Is it a committee? How do you help a company think through meeting both prongs of the M&A safe harbor provision? I think having a separate integration team is probably a luxury, Tom, that a lot of companies wish they had, but I think in practice don't, and they end up being the same team. And then the question is, well, what should those same people do? If there's still an investigation going on, that's obviously a priority. At the same time, are they responsible for integration? I think that they have to work closely together. Now, maybe the integration team, let's say that they're separate, or maybe they're wearing separate hats at different times, should just have a plan and keep focused on the big picture of what policies and procedures need to be implemented and how. Maybe you can have separate people doing the training and communication on that. I think you're absolutely, in any case, going to need a strong culture and strong tone from the top. You're going to need top management to both the buying company and the target entity, whoever survives that, to really set a tone like, this is really important and we're doing this now. If you've already disclosed to the DOJ, or even if you haven't, you also have to be cautious about so-called trampling of the evidence or spoliation of the evidence. You need to know when you acquire the company, are you also acquiring the data? Maybe you are if it's a share purchase and you're buying the whole thing, but if you're just buying some assets and there's a surviving entity that will carry on afterwards, are you even going to have access to the things you need from an investigation perspective? 
if a company, for example, is running its international agents out of the strategy department at headquarters and they're selling one particular business, the people in the business may not even know who the agents really are and certainly may not have been involved in the due diligence on them. So creates a lot. I, I know an easy answer, Tom. Certainly not an easy answer to that question. Mike, let me end with sort of asking you a big picture final question. Do you feel like this is a positive step forward for the department, a continuation? Does it bring certainty or why, damn the torpedoes, should we go full speed ahead at this point? Yeah, it's the question, yeah, full speed ahead and what are the torpedoes and what are they going to do for you? I think this is overall a good thing. Just setting down, okay, six months, one year, removes a lot of the doubt and questions that may have existed about, well, what is reasonable? Is it a reasonableness standard before? At the very least, it allows the compliance professionals to go to their business and say, guys, this is why I need to be at the table. This is why I need to be involved. And to the extent this just reminds people, even if it's a reiteration of existing policies, that compliance needs to be at the M&A table on both the buy and the sell side, I think that's a very good thing. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to link to your article in the show notes. I wanted to thank you and your colleagues for this article and can't wait to see what you guys come up with. Thanks a lot, Tom. And we have a name for your next podcast series, Stories and Pre-Acquisition Due Diligence. <laughs> Thanks. Great to talk to you.